Distro hopping, the idea that Linux is fun and the myriad ways people put distros together should be reviewed often. My name is Moss. I live in eastern Tennessee. I'm Dale. I live in northeast Ohio. And I'm Josh. I live in western Pennsylvania. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest. We love checking distros out. New distros, new versions of older distros, and even some we may have overlooked. We each have our preferences in complexity or desktop or package management. Perhaps we can help you find a new distro or help you better understand one that has piqued your curiosity. The idea of this podcast is that we each install a new distro to our chosen hardware for three to four weeks and use it as much as possible, perhaps even as our daily driver. We record all our trials, tribulations, fixes, and what we like and what we didn't. I tend to prefer looking at distros that would be kinder to a new user, especially one who is hoping to move over from another operating system such as Windows or Mac OS. Oh, I tend to take on the more advanced distros and give them a go. And I'm more of a Linux gamer and sysadmin ninja. We intend to give as much information as possible on each distro and we'll also divulge what hardware we're using and how we think the hardware may have affected the rating. Welcome to Distro Hopper's Digest, episode 40, recorded on February 9th, 2023. For this episode, we will be reviewing Cache OS and Big Linux. Josh will not be with us this episode. Monthly foibles, wherein we discuss what we did this month. I had more issues with my T540P. I had to completely reinstall Linux Mint and Bodhi. Mint would not update the kernel. It was missing files and I couldn't get them replaced with lots of help from Dale. When I reinstalled Mint, it used UFI, so I had to reinstall Bodhi to get Grub back. I really needed to use RescueZilla in advance to have a complete version of Bodhi as I use it, but no, it took me four hours to get Bodhi back to the way I like it. It was a good experience. For the foreseeable future, I will only have my current testing distro on that machine. I also have a new router slash modem and a new phone to deal with. Set up on each of those was fun for different reasons, which I will not go into at this time. Anything exciting going on with you, Dale? A few days after recording episode 39, it was brought to our attention that the feed burner feed for the podcast was having issues. After a brief discussion with the DHD team, a decision was made to switch to Red Circle. This decision was mostly based on the success Bill Hauser had using Red Circle for his podcasts, Three Fat Truckers, and Linux OTC, which I believe is off the cuff. He is also a co-host on Mintcast. I spent the next day reading through all the documentation on Red Circle's website, Once I felt ready, I created the free account and began the process of moving the feed. They have the option to import the feed via the feed address, which was problematic since FeedBurner kept reporting that an error had occurred. After several attempts, I was able to import episodes 1 through 16, of course with errors that needed to be edited. After several more attempts, I gave up and started the process of manually creating entries for the remaining 22 episodes. I downloaded the files from archive.org and used the podcast's blog to fill in the required details. While I was at it, I resized the logo. 
That took some trial and error because of the specific resolution requirements Red Circle had. I was trying to find the correct ratio of the image so it wasn't uh, skewed, so it looked normal. I want to thank Tony for his assistance in testing and verifying that the new feed was working on the uh, various podcast providers. In addition to archive.org and our blog, you can also listen to our podcast via the player on Red Circle. The link will be in the show notes. The remainder of my time off was spent visiting my cousin and a friend. I tried to catch up on my favorite YouTube channels and my favorite shows on Discovery Plus streaming service. I did resume working on my third history of the graphical user interface article series. It was eight months since I last worked on it. I have reached the 1980s, and boy, is it a busy decade. I've been deciding on how to proceed. So a flat cliffhanger, let's move on to the updates. Updates, where we discuss what we've learned about distros we've already reviewed. Mine is short. Open Mandriva LX Rome is out now, which is where 4.5 rolling went and it is already prepared to accept the future 5.0 files. Dale? Well, mine, not so much. We've had some busy projects the past month. So let's get to it. Void Linux is working with Fastly, a content distribution network, or CDN for short, to make their repositories faster and more reliable around the world and more available. Blue Star Linux has resolved the kernel issue that was plaguing them last month and have resumed their uh, releasing of the ISOs. Debian began the first freeze of testing three weeks ago, codenamed Bookworm, which is the next stable release of Debian. During this freeze, no large or disruptive changes are made to packages. No changes are made to packages that are used to build other packages. The next freeze, according to their timeline, is the 12th of February of this year. OpenSUSE has updated from 2048-bit RSA to 4096-bit RSA keys for RPM and repository signing keys. This includes Leap and Tumbleweed along with the backports and the SLE repositories. And SLE, S-L-E, is SUSE Linux Enterprise. That is their server edition. Blue Systems released Netwerner 23, codename Vaporwave. It is based on Debian 11 Bullseye using kernel 5.10.19, KDE Plasma 5.20.5, Qt 5.15.2, and Firefox ESR 102 with LibreOffice at 7.04. Based on my review in episode 25, this should be easily upgraded to Debian 12 before the next release of uh, Netrunner uh, 24. Somehow I read that code name as Vaporware. You know, as many times as I reread this script, I kept on saying Vaporware. <laughs> Vaporwave. <laughs> it's kind of irony. It was two years since they had released an update, and they've been doing it every year. So a lot of people were thinking it wasn't going to come out. So moving on, Zero Linux announced that new features will be few and far between. 
They are concentrating on stability and consistency. They have believed Zero Linux has reached its ultimate potential. Now it's all about tweaking and maintaining it. The monthly ISOs might be making a comeback, so they say. Storm OS has started two paid support options of $10 and $20. The $10 basic plan includes support via Discord, and the $20 premium plan will add a team viewer option and more. Voyager has a new website and a release date of the 23rd of April of this year for their 23.04 release. It will include GNOME 44, XFC 4.18, Kernel 6.2, and Mesa 23.0. Ubuntu Budgie has new edge tiling for 23.04. It replaces the built-in edge tiling. A link for the details will be in the show notes. They have a very good Examples of the new features, which is worth taking a look at. Pardis released 21.4 with too many updates to mention. A few were a new My Computer application, an updated Light DM greeter, and visual slash functional improvements in the Software Center. A link will be in the show notes. And that's about it. Beautiful failures, what we tried and failed to install or run this month. I ran big Linux on my T540P for a month, coexisting happily with four other distros. But my T540P was not happy. I started getting kernel panic error when loading big. So I took drastic action and pulled the drives, moving the Silicon Power 512 gig drive to be the main drive and removing the Samsung 256 gig drive, replacing the spare drive holder with the original CD-DVD drive. This is the configuration I will be reporting on in my review below. Interestingly, I cloned my wife's backup drive to the Samsung, and it only took like 40 minutes to clone, and then I made another copy onto a Silicon Power 256 gig, which I had originally bought for that purpose, and it took five and a half hours to clone. So the Samsung is indeed a faster drive. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> That's quite a, quite a difference. Dale? Okay, well, my failure was a project that was suggested to be my MOS, and I believe Bill from the Mintcast, I think, brought it up to you, called Armbian. The RBN project allows the project developers and community to create Debian-based or Ubuntu-based images for use on single-board computers, also known as SBCs. The most common is the Raspberry Pi. An image was created to work on AMD-slash-Intel-based computers. I was a bit confused as to why they did that since Debian and Ubuntu already work on these computers. Arbian's reasoning was that Arbian has better slash more current support than uh, compared to vanilla Debian, and in the case of Ubuntu, in their words, removes some of the bloat. They don't use ISO files. Instead, they use an image format that is what uh, GNOME Disk uses, the IMG. I verified the IMG per their instructions using SHA-SUM. I wrote the IMG file to the USB stick using GNOME Disks, which took close to nine minutes, which is a big departure from writing an ISO to a stick that takes, what, two or three minutes. 
After booting the USB stick and going through the configuration, I logged into the GNOME desktop session that appeared. The configuration consisted of the same questions a typical installation program asked. RBN functioned well, well, until I updated it, which resulted in not booting upon the uh, reboot. I didn't see any obvious reason why it wouldn't boot. So I wrote the image to the stick again and went through the configuration. This time I followed the instructions to install the stick to the SSD. Once I logged into the GNOME desktop, I still had Watt OS installed. The instructions said it would overwrite the contents of the SSD. Once I had completed the instructions, which were where I wanted to install it and what file system, ext4 or ptrfs, I wanted to use. After several minutes, it reported it was done successfully. I rebooted the laptop and was met with the Grub2 emergency mode. I rebooted off the Solus Live Bungie ISO that I had and looked at the SSD. I saw that there wasn't an EFI partition, which explains the need for the emergency mode. I don't know why it didn't copy that from the USB stick. So while in GNOME Disk, I deleted all the partitions on the SSD and booted off the RBN stick again. This time around, the installation program recognized that the disk was empty. It asked me if I wanted to create all the partitions that were required, and I responded with a yes. After answering the aforementioned questions, an error message appeared, and the installer exited. The EFI partition was too small and needed to be larger. The irony here is it's the one that created the partition. You know, so I head slapper right there. That's when I gave up and I moved on. Right. I've noticed that uh, EasyOS uses an IMG. And with EasyOS, I haven't ever managed to get it installed because after you plop the IMG onto the partition, then you have to go and create your grub. And that's a little over me, so. <laughs> yeah, I I'm thinking it's a holdover to the way that the pies and the other SBCs work. So, I don't know. It's not for me. <laughs> Maybe you should just burn it to an SD card. Yeah. Yeah, booting. Yeah, boot. I'm not, that's, that's a good question. I'm not sure if computers can boot off of SD cards themselves. I'm not sure if that's part of the uh, UEFI system or not. I know it can do USB, but it's interesting. Let's move on to the reviews. Okay, this month I am reviewing Big Linux. Intro, can a new user install Arch? That's the plan. This sharp new distro from Brazil tries to make Arch the most user-friendly distro in history, and it has some pretty major proponents already. There are some cool secrets here. It is based on Manjaro, which I may get around to later, but I figured I'd better get that out now. My hardware for this review, I used, of course, my Lenovo ThinkPad T540P. This computer has a fourth generation Intel Core i7-4710MQ, 16 gigs of RAM, and a 512 gig silicon power SSD with both Intel Graphics 4600 and NVIDIA GeForce GT 730M graphics. I installed it using the entire disk, which I noticed also set up a swap partition at the end of the disk. Installation Ease and Issues I booted my T540P, hit F12 at the proper time, and was prompted to use the ADATA stick that I had the ISO burned to. Since my system has both Intel and NVIDIA graphics, the next choice was to use a version 
with newer NVIDIA drivers, older NVIDIA drivers, or other options without NVIDIA at all. I selected the newer drivers as they should work on my 2014 machine. The next screen was to select language, with the first three choices, larger and brighter than the others, being Portuguese, Brazil, English, United States, and Espanol, España. Then I was given a set of eight themes, four light and four dark, to select from. I really can't tell much difference, so I selected Breeze Dark. I was then given six desktop styles to choose from, Classic, New, Modern, K-Unity, NextG, and DeskG. So I selected Breeze Dark. I was then given six desktop styles to choose from, Classic, New, Modern, K-Unity, NextG, and DeskX. My previous installation that had the kernel panic error, I was using Desk X, and it was really slow, so I changed to Modern, so this time I selected Modern as well. I was then given a nice-looking desktop, with one of the icons being Install System. I double-clicked on that one. I was then presented with choices of Pattern, Performance, or Compatibility, with Performance being Default. Okay, then. Then Calamaris loaded. I was informed I was not connected to the Internet, so I fixed that with my Wi-Fi selection and password. American English was already selected, so I hit Next. Then Time Zone, which was selected appropriately, so I hit Next again. Not all of my installers have me in the Eastern Time Zone. Some of them put me in Central. I do not know why. Keyboard selection is the same. Then I selected to replace a partition and picked my partition. Did not click the Encrypt System checkbox and hit Next. Now it was time to tell the system my name and login info, and I checked the box to log in automatically. On the next screen, all I had to do was click Install. I noticed that the clock was already set correctly for my time zone. That was nice. I started being shown the slideshow, which included learning that Big Linux uses ButterFS by default. Two minutes later, I was presented with an error code that the bootloader could not be installed. So I attempted to make a new partition table and failed and started over, instructing Big to use the entire disk. All done in two minutes, ready for restart. Post-installation hardware facts and issues. Restart showed Welcome to Grub and then moved to a selection screen with both selections being for Big. I let it load the default while typing this sentence. I was rewarded with the same nice desktop with icons for Trash, Control Center, and Dolphin, and a centered bottom taskbar, and then the Introduction to Big Linux screen loaded to help me get set up. Themes, Desktops, and Settings Choose Your Avatar and Language Packs were the choices on the first screen. I moved on. Choose Your Default Browser was next with choices of Brave or Other. I selected Firefox and went to install it, no problem. It downloaded 107, then prompted me to upgrade to 109. I believe it also took the time to install other updates, because it took about three minutes to do this. And I saw some other things going on in the background. I saw LibreOffice 7.4.3-3 being downloaded and kernel 5.15.85-1. It's now been 15 minutes since I started the installation the second time, and I have an updated system still going through the introduction screen. The next screen is KDE Connect. I skipped that. The next screen is Driver Installation and Hardware Information. I clicked on the Driver Manager to make sure they had the latest NVIDIA driver and found it had 390XX Bumblebee installed. I fiddled for a bit before finding how to install 470XX. I thought it was rather odd that they wanted me to update to the latest NVIDIA at installation and then didn't give me the latest NVIDIA, but I found it, installed it, and rebooted. This time it took a lot longer to retrieve the packages. I don't know what's holding it up, but it seems to be working at last. Another reboot. Back into the intro screen, I went on in the menus and found Telegram in the offerings. It downloaded the Flatpak info but did not install it. I then ended the intro screen, and it's time to start playing with Discover. 
But instead of Discover, I found Big Hyphen Store with native programs, AUR, flat packs, and snaps all in one store. It took time to get stuff installed, but it was really nice to see everything at my fingertips. The default browser is Brave, but you can add Firefox before you get out of the intro windows, and Big Store makes it easy to delete Brave, if that's what you want to do. I am having trouble getting Big to recognize its settings regarding the touchpad. I have it set to ignore the touchpad when a mouse is plugged in, and I have said mouse, but the touchpad is still reacting even when my thumb gets anywhere near it. There is not an all-out disable touchpad setting. I need to get back to them and tell them about that. Ease of use. The updater worked really well for the month prior to my kernel panic, and so far has worked well since I made it, the solo system on the machine, but I don't have enough months of use to tell whether that would continue to be the case. We know that Manjaro requires you to keep updating the repos. I think Big Store has fixed that, but without a few more months of data, it's hard to say for sure. Big Store works really well, but packages are loaded as native AUR snap flat pack in that order, and there's often a lot of AUR stuff. As I prefer flat pack, I often had to scroll down quite a bit to get to the flat pack selection. I was pleased to see that FreeOffice had native AUR and Flatpak versions. This is a continuous release version based on Manjaro, so there are hopefully no more installations or version upgrades. Memory and disk use. Uh, the disk got 9.3 gigs of space used on the SSD, and my memory at boot was reported by NeoFetch as 747 megabytes. So that's moderately light, but we're not talking uh, Bodhi here. Ease of finding help. I didn't feel like I ever needed help. This is a nicely put together distro and I found everything I wanted without trying. The one exception, of course, being I need to contact them about the touchpad problem. Plays nice with others. I'm not sure. Something caused a kernel panic, but it seemed to work well prior to that, so I would say yes, but I've got to downrate it because a kernel panic happened and I don't know if it was caused because of the multiple installations on my machine. Stability. Again, I have to mention the kernel panic. I have not had any issues since I reinstalled, but Arch is known to have long-term updating issues, as already mentioned, and I haven't run this long enough to prove Big doesn't share those issues. Similar distros to check out. Anything Arch with Plasma. I guess that says it all. You can put Plasma on anything, and Arch is very, very flexible about what desktops you can use on it. My ratings, ease of installation, new user 9 out of 10, Calamaris is a breeze. Uh, they might get thrown by the long periods of time on some of the updates. Experienced user 10 out of 10, hardware issues 10 out of 10, ease of finding help, community and web, X out of 10, because I didn't contact anybody. Ease of use 10 out of 10, play is nice with others 8 out of 10, stability 8 out of 10, that's a guess, it could be 10 out of 10. My overall rating is 9 out of 10. Overall, I really like this distro. I would need to keep running it for a few more months with no issues before I can completely recommend it, but it looks good and anyone who can install it would be able to use it with no issues, I hope. Arch without pain, who'd have thunk it? I would suggest that everyone go to DistroWatch and find the big Linux page. It doesn't currently show up in the rankings, and that's a sad thing. If we keep looking for it and keep clicking on it, it will show up. So let's move on to Dale. For this episode, I have Cachy OS. That's C-H-Y OS. From what I've gathered, it was started in the fall of 2021 
by Peter Young, Vladislav Nipigin, and Piotr Gorski. It was in development for almost a year. They have a GUI installation ISO of GNOME KDE, and the XFCE ISO is under development. Other desktops and window managers are available doing the uh, GUI installation. They also have an ISO that is a command line based installation. I noticed that they have a very active GitHub and SourceForge sites. This is a quote from their website and SourceForge. It repeats some of what I've already said. Cache OS is a distribution based on Arch Linux that offers an easy installation, several customization options to suit every user, and special optimizations for improved performance while remaining simple. Features, simple and easy to install and configuration, providing an x 8664v3 repo for all core, extra, and AUR packages, several different DEs, CLI and GUI installer, native ZFS support for all custom kernels, providing several different file systems, NetInstall offers 10 different DEs, different Linux kernel scheduler and general improved kernel out of the box in the repo, own browser based on Firefox, and a kernel manager. My hardware, the laptop I used is my old Lenovo ThinkPad T460. It has an Intel dual core i5-6200U 2.8 gigahertz CPU with a 14 inch display using Intel's HD Graphics 520, 16 gigabytes of DDR3 RAM, and a 500 gigabyte Samsung 860 EVO SSD. For the installation ease and issues, the GUI ISO's grub screen has the following options, Cache OS, Cache OS with NVIDIA closed source driver 900 plus and newer, legacy hardware, no mode set, Memtest 86, the UEFI shell, the UEFI firmware settings, system shutdown, and a system restart. There is a welcome screen upon the uh, boot up with a launch installer option listed at the bottom. Cache OS is using Calamaris installer and uses the XFS file system. I believe Red Hat Enterprise Linux and one other distro I reviewed uses XFS. It's not very common, but it's a very old file system. I think it dates back to the 90s. There is quite a bit of difference between installing on an empty drive versus one with an existing operating system. If I click on the installation link via the welcome screen, I have the option that will give you a choice between an online installation or an offline installation. When choosing the offline installation, you are not required to connect to the internet. If you choose the online installation, you will have the option of installing additional packages, which include what desktop to use. I noticed that if you use the installer link in the applications menu, it will only let you do an online installation. When the drive is empty, the installation is normal. The usual questions of language, location, where to install, and user account creation. However, when the drive already has an operating system, there are additional questions, but only if you select the online installation. The online installation had a pop-up before the installer window even appeared. It asked if I wanted to use Grub or System Deboot. 
This option also requires the computer to support UEFI booting and have it enabled. I chose to use System Deboot. After selecting my location, language, and keyboard options, the next screen had a selection of desktop options. They were Plasma, Cutefish, XFCE, Sway, Wayfire, i3, GNOME, Openbox, BSPWM, and LXQT. I chose GNOME. The following screen had a list of packages to install. These were various custom kernels and the aforementioned desktops, CPU microcode, Firefox, NVIDIA drivers, printing support, HP printer slash scanner support, ZFS, and accessibility tools. Next was the account creation, hostname, and options to log in automatically and use the same password for the administrator. The last screen is the summary of choices and click to install. During the install, a slideshow of information appeared, sort of similar like if you're installing Ubuntu. One of them mentioned their own compiled kernel using the BORE option, that's B-O-R-E. They also include the Arch kernel. The benefits according to Cache OS is that their kernel uses the BORE scheduler. It stands for Burst Oriented Response Enhancer. I didn't look into it any further because I wasn't interested. I never got into the custom kernel stuff. If you are, you can search for BORE scheduler on your favorite search engine. Upon completion of the installation, there was the option to restart now after the installer. Oddly, I had to click done instead of the larger restart icon. He clicked on it and nothing happened. During one of my installations, I tried to use the system deboot option. That did indeed boot Cache OS, but it didn't list Pardis Linux that I had installed as the other boot option. The issue is that Arch-based distros use forward slash boot for their boot images and other distros use the forward slash boot slash capital EFI. According to the Arch wiki for system deboot, all I need to do is copy the files from the slash boot folder or to the slash boot folder. Then I ran sudo boot ctl update and rebooted. Pardis was still not listed. I saw there was a config file that you could create for boot managers, but I didn't try it. This defeats the purpose of the install alongside option in the Calamaris installer, which is basically why I didn't proceed. My last installation was an offline installation using the replace previous Cache OS installation option. The installation failed with the error, failed to run Packstrap, failed to run Pacman. Since I was getting tired of installing this, I finally just used Gnome Disk, wiped the SSD, and did an offline install. The command line installation ISO has boot options install, install with speech, install copy to RAM, and EFI shell. I booted each available option and each time I was at the terminal screen. I had no clue what the installation program's name was. I looked at their wiki and there was no mention of a command line installer. I did find a mention on their update page saying that the command line installer is coming soon. So needless to say, I didn't try using it. This was very confusing and quite odd. So how did you get it installed? I didn't use the uh, command line one. There's nothing to run. <laughs>
I just used the GUI. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you it literally, you booted to a command prompt or a terminal prompt. No instructions. <laughs> so, I mean, I was absolutely godsmacked. I'm like, okay. Anyway, post-installation hardware facts and issues. The grub screen was customized with some geometric blue shaded shapes with the Cache OS name at the top. The login screen was the default GDM uses. I don't understand why these distro maintainers go to the effort of theming their distro, but never bothered to theme the login screen, but I digress. The wallpaper is the same blue shaded geometric shapes used in the grub screen. They are using GNOME 43.2 with the panel on the left side with the activation activities in the upper uh, left-hand corner. One notable addition is the pop shell tiling component from PopOS. Once enabled, it allows tiling functionality on top of the GNOME desktop. The other extensions they had installed are App Indicator for legacy tray icons, Dash to Dock, and GNOME 4X UI improvements. I was surprised that the Extension Manager extension wasn't installed. It replaces the need to use the web browser add-on to install uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, extensions. It works very well in my experience. A welcome screen appeared upon login called Cache OS Hello. It contains quite a bit of information. A distro readme with release information that links to their wiki, forums, and getting involved with the project. A button to install apps that were available during the online installation. The next button is apps and tweaks. There you can enable DNS crypt, systemd out of memory service, and others. There are system management tasks such as system updates, reinstall old packages, refresh key rings, clear package cache, and installing optional kernels, among many others. There are not many applications installed by default. Some of the installed apps are the Perot Media Player, Qt Development Applications, the Cavantum Theme Manager, Software Token, which is a RSA Secure ID app, GNOME Tweaks, and Octopi. Octopi is a GUI package manager uh, from the uh, Manjaro uh, developers. One set of packages I don't see often is Avahi. Avahi is a free zero configuration network implementation, including a system for multicast DNS, DNS-SD service discovery. Among the applications that were created by the devs are Cache OS Hello, which is the welcome screen, Cache OS Packages, Cache OS Kernel Manager, and Cache Browser. The Cache Browser is a fork of Firefox with patches from LibreWolf. And this Cache naming concept, this reminds me of Apple with their iEverything, iPod, iPad, iOS. <laughs> Plasma with their K-everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Katie with K-everything. If you are a fan of using the terminal for various tasks, they are using Fish for the shell, and they provide the GNOME terminal and Alacrity terminal emulators. Now, for the ease of use, the overall functionality was good. There were a couple rough edges that were annoying. Almost every time I used the Cache OS package installer, I needed to use the remove Pacman DB lock via the Cache OS Hello application. 
I could have also opened the terminal and deleted the forward slash var forward slash lib forward slash pacman db dot lck file. Even rebooting the laptop and signing in, never using Pac-Man or Octopi, the database would be locked. Even when I exit from the Cache OS package installer, the database would be locked. My complaint is mostly because I'm evaluating this from both a new user perspective and a moderate computer user. I think the more advanced person would be using Vanilla Arch and configuring it how they want. The devs have everything that was added to Cache OS available on GitHub for anyone that wants to add them to their Arch installation. Once I have removed the database lock from Pac-Man, their package manager functions similar to other distro package uh, management. I think it would have been better to remove Octopi and create their own. I'm not a developer. With that said, it shouldn't be much effort to include the functions of Octopi in their application, as it is an open source project on GitHub. And that's exactly what the Manjaro divs when they created Octopi. Flatpak is available but needs to be installed. It is available in the GUI via the Cache OS package installer. It has its own tab in the application. When I clicked on the tab, I was shown a screen asking me if I wanted to install it. There was a more details tab, which was blank when I opened it. When I clicked on OK to install it, the application window scrolled constantly for me to enter a number denoting that the default was 1. The error kept scrolling stated that Y was an invalid number, which I never entered. And I will agree, Y is not a valid number, so it had that correct. I tried typing 1 and clicking enter in the entry box below the installation window. Unfortunately, it didn't accept it and kept scrolling. I had to close the Cache OS package installer because it was futile. After removing the DB lock yet again, I opened the terminal and typed sudo pacman capital S flatpak. I was given nine options because everybody likes options. The default option was one, which was the Cache OS hyphen V3 repository. I didn't know which one, so I just chose that one. Why not? After about a minute, I was finished installing the required packages. I returned to the Cache OS package installer, GUI, and tried to install the Signal Messenger. That resulted in an error, and I had to click on the console tab to read the message. It's the next tab over. The command socat, S-O-C-A-T, was not found. I opened the terminal window again and used Pac-Man to search for the uh, phrase SoCat. It was indeed a package name, so I installed it via sudo pacman-s SoCat. I closed the terminal window and the package installer as well. After opening the package installer again, I searched for the signal messenger. The installation window opened showing Flatpak downloading and installing Ocard packages, like you would see if you were in the terminal. That was followed by a pop-up window reporting it was successful. I signed out, signed back in, and pressed the Windows slash super key and searched for Signal. It was found and opened. As with other distros, Signal would exit when the window was closed. I didn't bother editing the dot desktop file to add the minimize to tray option. 
That was because they had symbolic links pointing to scripts, and that was just too much effort for me to review, and I was kind of annoyed by that point. <laughs> so I just moved on. Since Flatpak was a meta package to install other required packages, I don't know why SoCat wasn't included. It was obvious that the Flatpak integration wasn't working. Perhaps if their Flatpak installation via the Cache OS package installer worked, it might have installed it. I say might because I don't know if it was using the same Flatpak meta package I used because after all, there were, what, nine options? This was their repository, so I really can't blame the Arch devs for this. Their custom browser, Cache Browser, is a fork of Firefox using the code from the LibreWolf browser project, which is also a fork of Firefox. It appears to be using the current branch of Firefox, which is version 109, as the 7th of February 2023. It has the following extensions installed by default. Dark Reader, it uh, forces uh, web pages to have dark mode even if they don't support it natively. Canvas Blocker is a JavaScript uh, blocker. And uBlock Origin, which is an ad pop-up uh, blocker. I love uBlock. Aside from the additional add-ons, the functionality is the same as vanilla Firefox, with the exception of signing in to a Firefox account. That functionality is broken in the Akashi browser. From what I've read in the Akashi OS forums, one of the devs claims it is a LibreWolf issue. Nothing more was written in the forum post. In my opinion, that was a non-starter for me. And installed a Firefox from the repo, which was at version 109.0.1. Instead of using Bash, they are using Fish. I am not a fan of Fish. I find it annoying and distracting to provide typing suggestions. I can see the interest in it for people that are not fast typers or not familiar with typing commands. I also thought that their terminal theme was too dark. I found it hard to read what I was typing. Even increasing the brightness of my display didn't help. Another annoyance was having NeoFetch execute every time I opened the terminal. NeoFetch is an awesome application for displaying useful details about your computer, such as kernel version, CPU in use, GPU in use, and memory. Again, I can see the need for this application for support issues. Just tell the user to open the terminal and repeat what is shown. They could have created the script and had it in the application list to click on instead. Memory and disk use. Well, it used nine gigabytes on the SSD and the memory was 723 megabytes reported by the free hyphen HM command. Pretty similar to what I found in big Linux. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting when I saw your results. The ease of finding help. Well, there's quite a bit of help. They have a wiki, a forum, telegram group, discord channel, and Reddit. I didn't interact with any of them, but I did search the forum and use the uh, the wiki. Helpful. I also searched the arts forums and was surprised that the question I asked was asked and the answers weren't RTFM. So maybe there is hope for the arts forums yet. Plays nice with others. 
No. <laughs> Not unless you're using another Arch-based distro. No, 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 nope, nope, nope. Talk to the hand. This is not much of a surprise. Arch has always had issues with dual booting. You could have, you know, of course, try system deboot. There again, I think that's odd because big Linux really didn't have a problem. And it is also an Arch, in fact, Manjaro-based distro. Yeah, that's the thing that's always confused me of Arch is I know it's roll your own, configure it how you want, but the consistency is inconsistent with that. <laughs> <laughs> My uh, stability. Well, I didn't have any crashes or lockups. Given the Arch base, it is solely up to the Cache OS devs to verify that the updates will not break the system. Stability is also largely based on the AUR, as this can cause more issues than the updates from the upstream Arch uh, developers. Which, yeah, those Arch scripts can install a whole bunch of files and making your day a very bad one. Uh, some similar distros to check out. Well, if you want all the eye candy customization type of stuff, it's Manjaro and Garuda. And big, if you don't like all the problems that you experienced. Yeah, big, yeah, would be another <laughs> choice. Ratings. Well, I'd say for a new user, it's going to be a six. An experienced user, it's going to be an eight. The uh, hard ratios, we're going to give it a 10. Ease of finding help for the uh, community and web is 10. Ease of use, seven. Plays nice with others. I'll just say three, because you can... Do it with Arch, but if you're, why would you want to be dual booting Arch with another Arch? Stability 10. Overall rating is a 7. And to close, I would say this is not for a new user. At least not yet. There are too many quirky things that need to be fixed for everything to work. An experienced user would be able to uh, fix these and work around them. The installation has too many options for a new user. In my opinion, they only make the installation longer. It is far easier just to install everything you are wanting after the installation. The selection of packages is too limited to be of any time saving, which is the point of offering them during the installation. The distro is worth looking at if you are a fan of the Arch-based distros and agree with the choices that the devs have made. Personally, the issue I have with this level of customized distros is, if you don't like the customizations, you will spend more time undoing what they did than what you would do installing it from scratch yourself. I would point out that our last couple of episodes, we have complained that we were both doing Debian-based distros, and this month we are both doing Arch-based distros. <laughs> And we didn't plan this, no. <laughs> no, we just, we, we try a bunch of things and see what works before selecting. And it's usually not, I'm going to do this next month. Yeah. Because what happens is we try and do this next month and we wind up reporting it in uh, beautiful failures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We basically do the old cooking trick of throwing the spaghetti against the wall and seeing if it sticks. So let's move on to the new releases. New releases this month from January 4th to February 9th of 2023. Nitrix D5C7CDFF. Nice of them to use normal 
release numbers, Dragonfly BSD 6.4.0, Dafile 23.01, Snal 1.25, Runtu 22.04.1 Lite, Rizzy OS 37.1.1, Robo Linux 12.09, Open Mandriva 23.01 Rome. This is their rolling version. Nobara 37, PC 2.3.1, Alpine 3.17.1, EasyOS 4.5.5, Bicom 6.7.0 PBXWare, Gnopix 23.1, Alt 10.1 Education, LibreElect 10.0.4, Archman 2023-0115, MX 21.3, Rebecca Black OS 2023-01-16, Regatta 22.1.0, Uruk 3.0 Cinnamon, Laka 4.3, Springdale 9.1, Legacy OS 2023, Archcraft 2023.01.20, Netrunner 23, Arch Labs 2023.01.20, Sparky Linux 2023.01, Absolute 2023.0122, Freespire 9.0.1, Manjaro 22.0.1, Tails 5.9, OSMC 2023.01-1, Live Rizo 14.23.01.22, Volumio 3.396, AV Linux MX-21.3, Parapasis 2.0, OpenSense 23.1, Maybox 23.01, Elementary 7, Reborn OS 2023.01.20, Ganopix 23.2, OpenMamba 2023.02.01, Alt 10.1 Workstation, Arco Linux 23.02.02, Slacks 15.0.1 and 11.6.0, Arch 2023.02.01, Manjaro 22.0.2, Sparky Linux 6.6, 4M Linux 41.1, Arch Labs 2023.02.05, Bluestar 6.1.9, Cache OS 2302.06, Plop 23.2, Endless 5.0.0 with Wayland for the first time, KDE Neon 2023-0209, SmartOS 2023-0209, and Univention 5.0-3. We have feedback this episode from Biku. We're going to be commenting throughout this because he has a lot of good things to say and a lot of good ideas to pursue. He writes, excellent episode as always, guys. Need I say anything more? Hands down the best Linux review medium out there. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Moss, you can try the following two things to try and fix the inconsistent SDA to SDB issue between reboots. Open slash Etsy slash default slash grub as root and add the following line to it. This is all capital letters, grub, underline, disable, underline, Linux, underline, UUID, equals, and then non-caps, false. Save the changes and run sudo update-grub. See if the above fixes the issue. If it doesn't, try to control the grub from a distro that ships the newer versions of grub compared to Debian and Ubuntu. Something Arch-based, Fedora-based, or maybe Open Mandriva-based. Anything other than Debian slash Ubuntu. I personally fixed the exact same issue by switching the grub from Debian stable to Alt Linux Sisyphus. 
Well, I, of course, solved the problem by getting rid of my second drive, so I don't have that issue anymore. Dale again amazed and impressed me by the thoroughness of his review and technical deep dives during the process. Dale's information on Grub slash GPT and XDG making flat pack applications to appear in the start menu was hugely informative and important. Kudos, Mr. Miracle. And uh, thank you very much. I appreciate the the compliments. I always have the fear when writing these uh, show notes that I get too complicated and too technical, so it's appreciated. He always sounds like a superhero. Mr. Miracle! <laughs> I need to go get my cape. It's in the dry cleaner. <laughs> he goes on to say, Josh, give Regatta OS a go. You'll love this gamer-focused distro, hopefully. And he gives a link that's in the show notes. Moss, I can help build a new DistroHopper's Digest website if you wish. I mean, the current one kind of looks dated besides being based on Google's now-defunct blogger platform. Let me know if you want me to help you build a new site. Well, that's a community thing. Got to talk to the guys, including Tony. I hope nobody's toes would be stepped on by doing that. Finally, congratulations to Moss and Dale in getting new computer hardware. Boy, I'm so jealous of you guys. You guys are lucky. I mean, here I'm at the other end of that spectrum, wanting to buy Kingston RAM for my computer and can't find it available in India, and importing them from overseas is absolutely way, way out of my means. I've been dreaming to buy either of these two, and he gives links to the memory that he wants to buy. A few distro suggestions for you guys, and there are links for Seduction, Nobara Project, and Rizzi OS. Keep up the great work and say my hello to Tony. Signed, Biku. Thank you, Biku. That was wonderful. I'd love to send you stuff, but I'm sure postage would be out of the issue, and I wouldn't. I don't think I've got exactly the RAM you need anyhow, but I've got how many RAM chips sitting around here. And there's also different countries have different tax and import tax. Yeah, I mentioned a long time ago, I before my wife came here, I shipped her a uh, X130E just for her use until she came here, which was less than a month later, although we weren't sure about the time frame at the time. And they charged $105 GST just for the shipping, just to deliver the packet. Wow. Yeah. And I wasn't selling it to her. I was loaning it to her, and she brought it back a month later. We disputed it for a while, and then her father went behind her back and paid the GST on it. <laughs> Announcements. For chatting with us further, you may choose to join our Telegram or Discord groups. You can find Josh on at Josh on Tech on most social networks or email at joshontech at pm.me. Also, he is co-host of the Crowbar Kernel Panic podcast. Dale? I'm at dale underscore cdo on Telegram and Discord. And my email is dale underscore cdo at pm.me. And you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News and Mintcast. My email is bardmoss at pm.me. And I'm on Mastodon as at Zyvala at hosttux.social. At least that's my main address. Plus, you can find me, Dale and Dylan, at ismoss.com. Before we go, we would like to thank all those who make this project possible. Archive.org for storing and helping distribute this program. Audacity, which we use to record and edit the show. Tony Hughes for managing the website and producing and editing the podcast. 
Joshua Lowe for work on our logo. All those who work on the teams which are creating, adapting, and maintaining the Linux distros we have reviewed this episode. Mid-Air Machine, creators of the song Streets of Santivo, used as our music under Creative Commons license. Thanks to Linus Tervals for the kernel, Richard Stallman for the GNU toolkits, and all those who have worked behind the scenes on free and open source slash library software. We will be back next month. Thank all of you for listening. Mm-hmm.